Welcome to Presenting Alfred Hitchcock Presents, presented by the Ann Arbor District Library. I'm Al Scheritzma, and does everyone out there know The Postman Always Rings Twice, the 1934 novel by James M. Cain that was made into a 1946 film starring John Garfield and Lana Turner? If not, I'm going to spoil it for you right now. In it, Frank and Cora murder Cora's husband, Nick, by staging an auto accident. After they pretty much get away with it, Cora pleads guilty to manslaughter and serves probation. Frank has a real auto accident in which Cora dies. Frank is then tried and convicted for murdering Cora. I just talked to the governor. But I, I didn't do it. I didn't do it, I tell you, I didn't do it! Wait a minute. All right, suppose you didn't do it. You tell the governor. Get me a new trial. I'm not going to go in that gas chamber for killing her. Suppose you got a stay of execution, a new trial, an acquittal of killing Cora. Then what? Last night, they auctioned off the fixtures at the Twin Oaks. The man who bought the cash register found a note in the back of the drawer. He brought it to me. It's addressed to you. Cora wrote it. It's a very beautiful note, Frank written by a girl who loved a man very much. I imagine it was written earlier the very night she died. A note of farewell, isn't it? She did try to run away that night. And since she had no idea anyone would ever see that note but you, it therefore has in it just enough of a confession to convict you of helping her kill her husband. So, if you were to leave this room because you didn't kill her, you'd soon be right back here again for helping her kill Nick. What's the use? Then, then what's gonna happen to me is not because I killed her? No, laddie, for killing Nick. <sighs> you know, there's something about this that's like well, it's like you're expecting a, a letter that you're just crazy to get. And you hang around the front door for fear you might not hear him ring. You never realize that he always rings twice. What's that? Well, he rang twice for Cora. And now he's ringing twice for me, isn't he? That's about it. The truth is, you always hear him ring the second time, even if you're way out in the backyard. Postman is the blueprint for any story that deals with a murderer being tripped up when he's involved in an accidental death that too closely resembles the method he used to commit a previously successful murder. Why am I bringing this up now? Because this is the same thing that happens to Mr. Appleby in our latest episode, The Orderly World of Mr. Appleby. Now that I've given the twist away, here's Hitch. Good evening, ladies. Has your husband recently acquired a faraway look in his eyes? In the event something unforeseen happens to you, do all of your worldly goods go to him? Is he at this moment nervously excusing himself from the room? If you have answered yes to all the above questions, you receive a score of 100, a gold star for neatness, 
and my advice to leave for mothers immediately. That is, immediately after the conclusion of our program. Our story tonight is called The Orderly World of Mr. Appleby. Unfortunately, it will do nothing to relieve your fears. If that is what you want, if you want contentment, security, peace of mind, listen to this advice from our friendly uh, philosopher. So here's The Orderly World of Mr. Appleby, first broadcast on April 15, 1956, starring Robert H. Harris and Meg Mundy, teleplay by Victor Wolfson and Robert C. Dennis, based on a story by Stanley Ellen and directed by James Nielsen. I've gotten into a little bit of a rut, always talking about the people listed in the credits before we get into the actual episode. So this time I think I'm going to flip it on its head. Since I already ruined the ending at the beginning, why not move my usual beginning to the end? So let's get right into the episode. As the lights come up, Mr. Appleby, played by Robert H. Harris, is in his antique shop. He is showing a piece to a customer who moves into the frame. It is a woman, whom we will soon learn is Martha Sturgis, played by Meg Mundy. She isn't interested in the piece that Appleby shows her because she thinks it's way too common. Well, this jewel box is lovely. I'm afraid that's not for sale either. Everything that's the least bit good seems to be spoken for. He gives her this look and this shrug as if to say... Well, what did you expect for such fine pieces as this? But that's not the reason he won't sell them. Still, before they get any further along, Appleby sees another customer and walks over to speak to him. Good afternoon. May I show you something? Yes. You might tell me where this came from. Please be careful. This is a very valuable antique. Yes, I know. It is 14th century touring from the Sahara, is it not? As a matter of fact, it did come from the Sahara. Yes, Mr. Appleby, but it came by way of Ankara, from where, incidentally, I have just come. Well, then you must be... Are you from the Dizar Company? I am Dizar Company. Dizar and son. I am son. Well, what a pleasant surprise. Your father supplied me with, oh, so many of my rarest treasures. A man of great taste. I've often wanted to meet him. I have come in his place. Mr. Dizar is played by Michael Ansara, whom we saw last time in episode 18, Shopping for Death as the Butcher. He has one more appearance in Alfred Hitchcock Presents. It's in The Babysitter. Episode 32. So Mr. Appleby takes Mr. Dizar into his office, which seems to be filled with as many antiques as his store is. I've never been to Turkey, or abroad at all, but with my treasures from these fabulous places all around, I, I often feel like a world traveler. Your treasures do not appear to sell, Mr. Appleby. Well, business hasn't been good. People just don't seem to want antiques. The lady in the shop, she wanted to buy several pieces. Of course, but they'd already been sold. Interesting. Antiques do not sell, and yet they sell. But whether they sell or no, you owe these are and son $12,000, it must be paid. I had no intention of doing otherwise. In two weeks? Two weeks? I haven't got it. You will get it soon? No. You see, I haven't really sold them. I found I couldn't part with them. I just can't. That woman. 
That woman has just interrupted a very revealing conversation, and her accidental breakage of a curio of a camel turns out to be quite fortunate, though Appleby doesn't see that right away, because it not only gets him out of a conversation in which he is admitting that he is a collector who is using his antique shop to own $12,000 worth of material that he cannot pay for. Essentially, he's stealing. And because it also reveals to Appleby and Dizar that Martha is quite wealthy. Because when Appleby tells her the camel is worth $1,000, she says, I'm afraid I don't have that much with me. Would a check be satisfactory? Yes, a check would be satisfactory. But first, let's jump back just a little bit to where Appleby has stooped down to pick up the pieces of the camel. Martha stoops down too, and the camera stoops down with them. Jack Seabrook at barebonesez.blogspot.com says that Martha dropping the valuable antique on the floor foreshadows her own fall at the end of the show. But Martha doesn't know that, so let's get back to that check. We get a close-up of it, and this is where we see Martha's name for the first time, and her address, 100 Bakeman Place, New York, New York. I don't think there actually is a Bakeman Place in New York, New York. The check is from Gotham National Bank, which I believe is where Batman's alter ego Bruce Wayne keeps his money. My search of the web seems to indicate that there used to be a Gotham National Bank in New York, but not anymore, and I don't think there was one at the time of this episode. This is also where we learn that Appleby's first name is Lawrence, as he asks her to make out the check to him personally, not to his shop. We also see today's date as she writes it on the check. It is April 15th, 1956, the same date on which this episode is airing, which is a nice touch. There you are. And please forgive my awkwardness. Well, these things do happen, Mrs. Sturgis. Uh, miss. Note the way that sneaky men in the 1950s, too lazy to look at a ring finger, discovered whether a woman was married or not. Not that Appleby is doing that in this particular case. Not yet. Martha exits. The camera stays with Appleby as he starts to fold up the check and put it in his pocket. But as he walks along with the camera following him, he walks right into Mr. Dizar, who takes the check from him. Now you only owe $11,000. Balance in two weeks, please. I told you, Mr. Dizar, it's utterly impossible. Perhaps you'll be fortunate enough to have more clumsy women enter your shop. Well, I should hope not. Then you will leave me no choice but to take your treasures and sell them myself. Take them from me. Ah, oh, you can't be serious. I am most serious, Mr. Appleby. If you cannot raise the money... No, 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 no. No, I'll raise it. I'll raise it somehow. Perhaps I can get a loan from the bank or something. I don't know. I don't know, but... You'll get your money. I wonder how Appleby even got this store started if he's going to go to the bank for a loan rather than sell the items in his shop. But I'm also wondering how Mr. Dizar is going to cash that check. It's made out to Lawrence Appleby, after all. Well, let's not worry about that. Instead, let's move along to Mr. Appleby's apartment, where his wife, Lena, is listening to generic loud jazz, reading a magazine, and it looks like possibly eating bonbons as she sits on the couch. Do you have to have that thing blasting all the time? I like it. Goodness knows I don't have any other company around here. You won't even let me have a cat. You know very well a cat would scratch up the furniture. Who cares? You don't, obviously. 
So now we learn that Mr. Appleby is not only a collector, he's a fastidious collector. His problem is the only place he can be fastidious is in his shop. His wife is not sympathetic. And why should she be? As she says... Can't stand a speck of dust in that fancy shop of yours either. And what good does it do? Nobody ever buys anything. Plus, as the Pie Lady at pieladyanthology.wordpress.com points out, there's a blanket on the couch that's not folded, and evidently this is supposed to mean that Lena is a terrible slob, even though the rest of the apartment is spotless. Anyway, now that the shop has been brought up, Mr. Appleby has something he wants to tell Lena. I've got some serious business troubles. I'm going to have to raise some money, $11,000. $11,000? Just where do you think you're going to raise that kind of money? From you, I hope, from your endowment policy. You've got a nerve. I'm sorry, Lena, I must insist. Insist all you want, it's not going to do you any good, because you've got to have my signature and I'm not signing anything. Lena! I know what you do if you got hold of that money, just go out and buy some more treasures. No, no, I won't. But you're not getting it, so forget it. Lena leaves the room and ominous music rises as Appleby chews on his thumb and then goes over to a bookshelf where he pulls out a book that is hidden behind the other books. Clearly, these are books that Lena never touches. Because if she did, it might strike her as a little suspicious that the book is stashed behind the other books, rather than just shelved with the other books. It would look even more suspicious if she looked at the title, Accident or Murder. So this is not a spur-of-the-moment plan. This is something he's been considering for a while. The scene dissolves to a later time. Appleby comes out of a room without his suit coat on, but he still has his bow tie and his suspenders, still well-dressed, even in the after hours. The room from which he emerges is not the same room into which Lena exited. Possibly he's come from the bedroom. She went into the kitchen. And he emerges with a throw rug, a Persian rug, in his hand. He puts the rug down in front of the fireplace. Then he kneels down, and he pushes the rug so that it ruffles up in a little bump and back down again. But it's just stage business, because the rug doesn't move at all. He refers to the book, which he has opened on the mantel. He positions his armchair just so, and he calls to Lena and asks for a glass of water. Lena! Yeah? Would you bring me a glass of water, please? She replies with my favorite line in the entire episode. Who was your servant last year? It's nice that she gets that parting shot, because unfortunately for her, she does bring him that glass of water. As Lena enters, Appleby bends down as if about to tie his shoe. But instead, as Lena steps on the rug, he pulls the rug out from under her. We don't see this, of course. We just see Appleby yanking, and we hear climactic music and a shriek from Lena. The rug ends up about chest high on Appleby, like a blanket. His eyes bug out as he realizes the impact of what he's just done. His facial expressions actually for the rest of this scene are very strange. It's hard to interpret exactly how he's feeling. Is he happy? Is he appalled at himself? Is he in shock? It's a mystery. It seems like a pretty iffy way to kill somebody, but it works. We get a camera shot above and behind Appleby over his shoulder, so to speak. And we see Lena lying there, having hit her head, apparently, on the fireplace hearth. 
Now, part of the reason why we don't see Lena actually fall is to preserve the delicate sensibilities of the audience of 1956. But another part of it is that, unfortunately, this isn't about Lena. It's all about Appleby. We don't get to see her reaction of shock. We only get to see his reaction. And so, as he stands up, the camera stands up with him. As he moves over to her body, the camera moves over with him. As he stoops down to check her body, the camera stoops down with him. He checks for a pulse, and we get a close-up of his face and his reaction. In fact, we don't see her face at all. She's turned away from us. Determining that she is dead, he stands up, the camera stands up, and he walks over to the phone, the camera staying with him, as he lifts the receiver and he says, Operator, I want to report an accident. Jack Seabrook says Appleby immediately calls the police to report an accident, foreshadowing his position at the end of the episode where he remains on the telephone after Martha's fatal fall. Now, before we crossfade to Dizar and Appleby back in his shop, let's look at Louise Larrabee, who played Lena. According to the New York Public Library archives, Louise Larrabee was born Alberta Louise Lowe. She first acted on Broadway in the play Angel Island in 1937. During World War II, she toured in the Pacific with the USO camp shows. She met her husband, actor John Barragray, whom we saw last time in Portrait of Jocelyn, when they performed together in a camp show in New Guinea. She toured with The Iceman Cometh in 1947 and with Carousel from 1947 to 1949. She toured with Gloria Vanderbilt in Picnic in 1955. But beginning in 1951, she starts to make appearances on television, almost entirely television, with only four film roles from the 50s up until her last role in 1978. In the films Act One, Rush It, The Taking of Pelham 123, and Failsafe. Spending the money I send you on this? Give me that! You ain't your Yeah? I'm General Bogan. I'm looking for Colonel Cassio. He gave this address. Oh, sure now, General. That's a gentleman. Honored to have you. Son always speaks well of you. That's Louise in there having a drunken argument with her drunken husband. And this seems to be the pattern, to a great extent, to her career. Either playing the fed-up wife who isn't long for the world, or the put-upon wife, or the employee with a chip on her shoulder. I don't know how true this is of her role in the Suspicion episode, The Eye of Truth, or in the Suspense episode, A Time of Innocence, but it is certainly true of her role in the Suspense episode, Nightmare at Ground Zero, who could just as easily be the same character as she is in this episode. That episode, written by Rod Serling, deals with a man who makes mannequins for a living to put in the Ground Zero spot for the atomic bomb tests and his wife's unhappiness with his career path. Hello, dear. Well, I, I've got so much to do yet, and I, I haven't eaten... I waited supper as long as I could. It got cold. Lovely dinner I had. Cold roast. The cold potatoes were particularly... George. George! Dear, really, I've had a very miserable day. The Colonel had me on the carpet all afternoon. I didn't have all the mannequins quite done, and, and he was quite anxious Isn't that I... Isn't that just too bad? 
Did you tell him you had a wife in the house, a wife that gets precious little attention as it is? I promised him. You that promised I... me too. Ten years ago, you promised me we'd have a wonderful life together. Wonderful life. That's a yak. The first year, it was the puppets. Yeah, the puppets. The wonderful little marionettes. Yeah. The wonderful little marionettes. They kept us starving for two years. Tired of her constant nagging, he develops a scheme in which he will replace a mannequin with her so that she will be blown up in the atomic explosion. Now, I did a podcast not too long ago with Tom Elliott of the Twilight Zone podcast about Nightmare at Ground Zero, and we agreed that although Louise Larrabee's character seems shrewish, she actually makes a lot of good points. And while her husband is the main character, she in many ways is the sympathetic one. I think that's true here, too. She may come across as irritable and contemptuous, but she's got every right to be. Louise Larrabee remained married to John Barragray until his death in 1975. She died in 2002 at the age of 85. And she's in one more episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, One More Mile to Go, episode 28 of season 2, where she plays, as the pie lady puts it, another harsh, doomed wife. Back in our episode, some time has passed, and Appleby meets Dizar in the antique shop. I'm sorry I had to insist on payment, Mr. Appleby, but my father in Ankara does not understand these delays. Well, different countries, different ways of doing business. I hope your father will continue to send me his wonderful objet d'art. Oh, he writes that he has found some excellent Hittite things. Hittite? How perfectly splendid. Please, you must ask him to send me some at once. Well, there's a great demand if it could be paid on delivery. That's impossible. I haven't a cent left for my wife's estate. Surely there are customers. The so nice lady who broke your camel. Martha Sturgis, she must be very rich. So really, we can blame Dizar for what happens through the rest of this episode. He's the one that mentions Martha as a possible source of money. And having done this, having set the ball rolling, he exits, not to be seen again. Appleby, however, goes over and picks up the jewelry box in which Martha was interested before. We get a crossfade to Martha's house, where Appleby has presented her with a wrapped gift. Why, it's that lovely jewel box. Oh, I thought you said it had been sold. The customer who bought it changed her mind. I remembered how much you admired it, and, well, I simply had to bring it to you. Oh, oh, but I couldn't possibly accept. Oh, please, I was very rude that day. It would make me feel much better. Oh, your behavior was perfectly understandable, Mr. Appleby, I assure you. And certainly not worth this much. You must let me buy it. But then I would feel like a door-to-door -door salesman. No, no, Mr. Appleby, I'm sorry. But it would be improper for me to accept such an expensive gift. From, from a man you hardly know? Well, that's true. No, but... no, you're, you're terribly, terribly kind, but you must let me send a check. Very well, if you insist. But I warn you, Miss Sturgis, I shall make a point of getting much better acquainted so I can present a proper apology. He really comes across as so smarmy and creepy here, and the look on Martha's face seems to reflect that she feels the same way. But that doesn't stop her from letting him call on her in the future. Now we get our first glimpse of Martha's house here, with its curtains with tassels, its artificial fruit in a bowl, its doilies on the back of the sofa, and drab-looking paintings on the wall. 
and it really is the sort of place that would make Applebee's skin crawl. But he's after bigger game at this moment. And so more time has passed in our next dissolve as Applebee shows up at the door courting Martha with a really ugly little bouquet of flowers. It turns out that Martha has a maid and she answers the door. Come in, Mr. Applebee. Good evening, Ella. I believe Miss Sturgis is expecting me. Yes. And she even gets a name. But this is the only time we see Ella. And the only reason I mention it is that this is the second appearance on Alfred Hitchcock Presents by Molly Glessing. We saw her last, you may recall, in episode 23, Back for Christmas, where she was also a maid. She's in seven total episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Her next is The Three Dreams of Mr. Finlater, episode 30 of season two, in which I believe she also is a maid. Now, it's not clear how much time has passed, and we don't know how many times Appleby has come to call on Martha, but it's clearly been enough time for him to pop the big question. But it's also clearly been not enough time for Martha to stop calling him Mr. Appleby. What a delightful picture you make sitting there. I wish I were an artist. Oh, you're such a flatterer. I don't know what I'm going to do with you. I have a suggestion. You have? Yes. Martha, I wish you'd marry me. Me? Oh, you don't know what you're saying. I know exactly what I'm saying. There comes a time to every lonely man when he can no longer bear his loneliness. If he is fortunate enough to meet a woman to whom he can give all his respect and tender feelings, he must say so, or deserve his loneliness. But you have so much, Mr. Appleby. Lawrence. Lawrence. Oh, you have so much. You have your shop, all your lovely works of art. I'm afraid you'd find me inadequate. I would find you delightful. All the rest of our days. Oh, no, 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 you, you must understand. It's just that I've waited so long, it would be foolish to rush in now. It would be better not to get married at all than risk marriage with a man who's not interested in me, in my happiness. I should have no other interest but you, my dear. And your curios. Well, yes, my curios. Meg Mundy is wonderful in this scene. She exudes in the timber of her voice in her looks, in her body language, all of that feeling of inadequacy that she has, combined with the fear that Appleby will be marrying her for her money, combined with the thought that, as she says, she's waited so long, it might be better to not get married at all. But she agrees to have Appleby meet her lawyer, Mr. Gainsborough, who has become a father figure to her since her father died. Appleby takes her hand, she puts her head on his shoulder, and he turns his head just a little bit so that we can see the expression on his face. Once again, like many of Appleby's expressions, it's a little bit cryptic, but it's certainly not loving. And so, after a word from our sponsor, the lights come up to show Mr. Gainsborough sitting behind his desk. As he speaks, the camera pulls back to show Mr. Appleby sitting there, listening attentively. He is once again dressed to perfection with a different bow tie, the last one polka-dotted, this one striped. In my capacity as Miss Sturgis' legal advisor, I'm sometimes called on to give counsel in matters of the heart. In short, matrimony. Quite naturally. In so doing, one must be aware that Miss Sturgis' considerable fortune may be the main objective. I have no knowledge of or interest in Martha's money. Nevertheless, that fact exists. However, 
Miss Sturgis is prepared to put that thought out of her mind. If you are prepared to meet all other obligations of marriage. Oh, I am. Mr. Appleby, have you ever been married? Yes. Divorced? Oh, good heavens, no. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> if the question seemed impertinent in these days of moral laxity... I can assure you, sir, I'm as far from moral laxity as any human being can be. I have no vices. What I love about this moment is that even as Appleby is saying he has no vices, you can see that Gainsborough has a pack of cigarettes in his shirt pocket. That has to be a choice by the director. I'm sure Gage Clark didn't say, can I carry my pack of cigarettes around with me while I'm playing Gainsborough? And we never see Gainsborough smoke. So unless it's a counterpoint to Appleby's, I have no vices, no vices except murder, I don't know why it's there. And now that I've mentioned Gage Clark, who is, of course, playing Mr. Gainsborough, let's take a look at him. He was born in 1900 in Vassar, Michigan. Wikipedia says that in January 1920, the federal census shows that Gage was not employed and was still living with his parents. But by 1929, he had relocated to New York City, where he was performing in major Broadway productions. He continued in Broadway roles all through the 30s and 40s, including a role in the 1937 play Many Mansions, where he received very favorable reviews for the central role as Reverend Roger Crandall. Gage ended up playing reverends at other various times throughout his career, including in The Real McCoys, The Absent-Minded Professor, The Return of Dracula, and the Twilight Zone episode One More Pallbearer. If I'm to die tonight, I want to be with someone I love. Somebody I love. How theatrical, <laughs> but more burlesque than legitimate. Have the decency, Reverend, to depart this earth with just a fragment of the truth in your mouth. Tell me to my face that you're so scared, so miserably frightened that you'd sell your wife by the pound if it meant your own survival. If those were the last words I spoke before I died, they would also be the worst falsehood I ever uttered on earth. Now, will you open this door? Will you let me leave now? Here's Wikipedia again. When the United States entered World War II, Clark was 41 years old, an age still young enough for induction into military service. He therefore joined the U.S. Army in 1942 and served in the Transportation Corps as a private in Company B of the 487th Port Battalion, which was initially deployed to Europe to supply troops for the Allied invasion of France in 1944. After the war, he returned to acting, and in the 50s, he turned to television. He's the high school principal, Mr. Bascom, to Wally Cox's high school science teacher in Mr. Peepers. He plays a doctor in the thriller episode, Portrait Without a Face. No relation to the suspense radio episode I mentioned last time. There's a simple explanation for it. I can think of one right now. Somebody with a perverted sense of humor had a duplicate key to the studio, sneaked in, painted his nasty little picture, and sneaked out. There. Simple? Yes, that's simple. You may be right. Well, of course I'm right. Any other explanation would be absurd. This is the 20th century, man, not the 16th. You know, Doctor, back in those days, if two men were having a conversation like this, one of them would probably be saying this is the 16th century, not the 12th. 
at any other time, I should be delighted to have a metaphysical conversation with you. It would probably be both enjoyable and informative. However, this is not the time. And he's a plainclothes cop investigating Meg Mundy in the suspense TV episode, Goodbye, New York. Wait a minute, sister, what's the hurry? Can't give me that package. First, I want to give you a few words of friendly Please advice. Please give me that package. Take it easy, sister. You won't gain anything, anything by all this running. What do you mean? Nothing, only take it easy. You'll live Please longer. give me that package or, or I'll call a cop. Okay, sister, it's up to you. Those of you who enjoyed him as a lawyer may want to check him out in the Susan Hayward film, I Want to Live. No court-appointed attorney for me. I don't want you, Mr. Tibro, period. I want the public defender. I assure you I'll do the very best I can with the $500 given me to investigate your case. 500 bucks. That's not enough to investigate who's pinching soap from or why. Look, at least with the public defender I could put up a fight. Even if he doesn't have the men in the dough that DA has. Why can't I have the public defender? Because, as I've tried to explain to you, the district attorney has preempted him and your interests are adverse. Oh, he's a defendant too, isn't he? Yes, but he claims that you did the actual killing. This is the first of four Alfred Hitchcock Presents episodes for him. He appears next in Cheap is Cheap, episode 26 of season four. And Gage Clark died in 1964 at the age of 64. And so, Gainsborough tells Appleby that Martha has provisionally agreed to the marriage but then he'll have to wait for one month and he'll have to court her assiduously. Constancy, devotion. Remember, she's a woman, and I believe they're all very much alike. Yes, I believe they are. <laughs> on the one hand, that's just 1950s sexism, but on the other hand, it's a hint to the similarities that Appleby will find with Lena and Martha, primarily their disinterest in his antique shop and their wish for him to get rid of it. Back at Martha's home, Gainsborough has put together a prenup that essentially says that everything they own, in case of their deaths, goes to the other person. But there's an additional proviso. That after the marriage, you will take up your residence here, in this house, where Martha was born and where she has always lived. Here? Appleby looks around. We get a nice close-up of a pedestal that holds a stuffed owl and a long-necked ceramic animal that looks almost like a parody of the expensive camel that Martha broke. Behind it, a very faded sampler that has a boat on the sea and the words, Peace be... and I can't read the rest of it. And yet, in the search for Martha's money, he agrees to take up residence there. But our next dissolve brings a close-up of a tray with tea things and remnants of cookies on it. Just the sort of thing that drives Appleby wild. I can never understand how women can be so disorderly. You look tired, dear. I'll clear this up later. Come over here and tell me about your day. She'll clean it up later? What happened to Ella the maid? Was she only hired for that one scene? Did they fire her after the wedding? We never see her again. In any event, Martha did ask Appleby about his day. I've had a frightful day. Caesar is threatening to foreclose on my stock. Why is that? I'm behind in my payments on some Hittite specimens. If I don't raise $7,000, I'll lose them. Oh, let them have their old curios. You don't seem to understand, Martha. There's a strange jump cut right here. They're both sitting on the couch, the camera in sort of middle position to show them, 
And then even as Appleby turns his head, there's a cut of the same shot, only just a little bit closer. It's also done in such a way that it tries to synchronize the turn of his head so that it's fluid. Why there is a cut here, I don't know. After the cut, Appleby continues. I could lose the shop. Would that be such a bad thing? It doesn't pay. And then you could stay at home with me. I'd go out of my mind. Uh, no, that'll be Mr. Gainsborough. Does he have to call every night? <laughs> no, happy he's called every night since my father died. All those years I've lived alone. He can't get out of the habit. He only wants to know that I'm all right. Hello? Yes, Mr. Gainsborough. Yes, thank you, I'm Will. Yes, he's here. Yes, fine. If you're only listening to the audio, that sounds pretty mundane. But as Martha gets up and walks over to answer the phone, the camera assumes Appleby's point of view. And by the time she gets to the phone, the camera has dropped down to her feet, where she is standing on a Persian rug by the fireplace. There's nothing subtle about this. We move from the shot of her feet to a shot of Appleby looking at her feet, and we have a pretty good idea of what's on his mind. And so we dissolve to Appleby entering the house again. For the first time in the entire episode, Appleby is not wearing a bow tie, but instead a regular contemporary tie. And he's looking very down in the mouth. And what does he encounter as he gets into the living room? You're late. Every night you get home later and later. What is that thing? Well, that is Dickie. I bought him to keep me company. You're away so much. Cats are destructive. You know what a mess they make. Oh, I don't mind. Remember what Lena said earlier in the episode. You won't even let me have a cat. Now Martha has gone along and gotten one without his permission. Not only that, she essentially ignores him as he spouts off about losing his shop and focuses on Dickie and what to feed him. Martha, I must have $7,000 by tomorrow. Why are you hungry, Dickie? What would you like for supper? Fish? Haven't you been listening to me? These are and son have given me until noon tomorrow. I'll lose my shop. Oh, it'll be no great loss, I'm sure. And I'd much rather have you home here with me. You won't lend it to me? No, dear, I'm afraid not. It'll be nice having you here. You'll see what fun it'll be. Come on, Dickie, I'll give you a nice saucer of milk. You're surely not going to feed that beast from, from that piece of severed china. You and your old curios. Frustrated, he goes over to the fireplace and stands with one foot on the hearth and one foot on the rug. We get a shot of his feet down there as he looks down and it all clicks into place for him. He's not only going to do it again, he's going to do it right now. And just in case we're a little slow on the uptake, the music rises up to help us to realize what's going on. So again, like last time, he bends down, moves the rug around a little bit, pushes it so that it rumples up, though it doesn't move, more stage business, moves his chair over, sits down, and he calls to Martha. Martha, dear. Would you bring me a glass of water, please? Just a moment, dear. 
He bends down, pretending to tie his shoe, and when Martha enters, you are he strikes. Now, I don't know if you heard what Martha said in the heat of all of this going on, so let's repeat it. You are Here you are, Appy. This is the first of only two times in the episode, I believe, in which she calls Appleby Appy. There may be a previous time when she answers Mr. Gainsborough's phone call, but it's hard to tell. This loving nickname actually comes from the short story, where Martha insists on calling Appleby Appy, and it drives him insane. So Appleby has yanked the rug, and it is shown from the same point of view as the first time we saw it. It's all Appleby, as he pulls that rug up, this time to his neck. His eyes bug out as they did before, and perhaps this is why we only see Appleby, not his victim, the first time. Not to spare the viewer the sight of somebody falling to their deaths, but so that it can be repeated here with a different, unexpected outcome. Was that how you did it before? Was it accident or murder? Oh, yes, I found the book. Perhaps Appleby should have left that book behind when he moved into Martha's house. It's not like he really needed to refer to it again. Even then, I didn't believe it. Oh, I suppose deep down in my heart I did. That, along with what Mr. Gainsborough found out about the first Mrs. Appleby, it would have been rather hard to ignore. I have no idea what you're talking about. Well, perhaps you would like to see the documents that Mr. Gainsborough has collected. I'm sure the authorities would find them extremely revealing. I see. No doubt you'll expect me to leave at once. That was my first emotion. And it is certainly what Mr. Gainsborough is urging. But what would you do? Marry other unsuspecting women and murder them too? I feel it's my duty to protect them from you. No, Abby. I married you long after I'd given up hope of ever getting married. I'll make the best of it. You are to give up the shock and spend your days here with me. Here? It's impossible. You have no choice in the matter. All the arrangements have been made. There's a letter in Mr. Gainsborough's safe that would certainly hang you if I were to die, under whatever circumstances. And Mr. Gainsborough will continue to call here every night at this hour to see that I am well and happy. So maybe Appleby should have been sure that she was standing on the rug before he pulled it out from under her. On the other hand, maybe he's lucky she wasn't standing on the rug after what she's just said. At least for now. But now we come to a moment that feels atypical. It feels like it's something that the plot needs. It's that moment when the phone rings and Martha says, Answer it. Instead of answering it herself, now, the first time we saw one of these phone calls, Martha insisted that she answer herself because she knew it was Mr. Gainsborough. So what's different here? Well, it's possible that she's exerting her will now that she's put Appleby in his place. But if so, it turns out to be a big mistake for all concerned. Hello? Let me speak to Mrs. Appleby. Appleby tries to wrest back a little bit of power, which also turns out to be a big mistake. 
I'm sorry. I'm afraid she can't come to the phone right now. I'll give her a message. This is Sidney Gainsborough, and I want to speak to your wife immediately. Mr. Appleby, I will give you precisely 10 seconds to have her on the phone. His gambit quashed. Appleby holds the phone out to Martha. It's for you. Only to have Martha slip on the rug and fall to her death. This time, as opposed to Lena, we get a camera shot of her from the front showing her face. But it's the same result. It's even the same music and almost the same scream. Not to be overly morbid here, but here's Lena's death. And here's Martha's. And now Martha can't come to the phone after all. Appleby, 10 seconds. You hear me? Your time is up. We finish up with the pie ladies, oh no you didn't sting, and the postman has just rung twice. Now let's look at all those people we ignored in our opening credits. Robert H. Harris is in eight total episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents and one episode of the Alfred Hitchcock Hour. This is his second. We saw him last time in Shopping for Death, episode 18. You can find out more about him there. His next is The Hidden Thing, episode number 34. This is the first of two episodes for Meg Mundy. She was born Margaret Ann Mary Mundy in London and moved to the United States at the age of six. Her mother was the Australian opera singer Clytie Hine, and her father was the English cellist John Mundy. This is from the website broadcast41.com. Meg Mundy had a varied and prolific career as a singer, model, and actress in theater, television, and film. She was a soloist with the New York Philharmonic beginning in the 1930s and also performed in the chorus in several Broadway shows. To support herself in acting school, she looked for employment in modeling. In 1939, renowned fashion photographer John Robert Powers told her she was no beauty, but I bet you photograph. Told that she needed to do something about her dreadful hair, chided by fashion photographer Horst P. Horst, that you're too ugly to model, Mundy persisted and was eventually signed by Vogue fashion editor Sally Kirkland. Despite the criticisms of male photographers, she became a highly successful model in the 1940s, appearing frequently in Vogue, and was named one of the 12 all-time great fashion models in Life magazine. Wikipedia says that in 1940, modeling agency founder Harry Conover cited her as one of the 10 top models, those who lure the highest salaries. And a newspaper article two years later reported that she was said to be Manhattan's highest paid model. This is Broadcast41.com again. Mundy's first role was as a walk-on in Sidney Kingsley's 1936 Ten Million Ghosts. Her big break as a stage actress came with her role in The Respectful Prostitute in 1948. Written by Jean-Paul Sartre, the play was loosely based on the Scottsboro case and explored the scapegoating of an African-American man for a sexual assault committed by a white man. In a recap of the theater season, Mundy was said to have won the rave reviews from the Cricks, as well as a Theater World Award for her performance. However, the blacklisting publication Red Channels identified her as an actress lead in Respectful Prostitute. 
and reported that Mundy had provided a recorded message to a rally in support of the Hollywood 10 in March 1948, as well as allowing her name to be listed in an advertisement in Variety in support of the 10 later that year. Let's stop and look at a little bit of this. The Hollywood 10 were film producers, directors, and screenwriters who appeared before the House Un-American Activities Committee and refused to answer questions concerning their possible communist connections. They spent time in prison for contempt of Congress and were for the most part blacklisted by the Hollywood studios. Wikipedia says that Red Channels, the report of communist influence in radio and television, was an anti-communist piece published in the United States at the start of the 1950s, issued by the right-wing journal Counterattack on June 22, 1950, The pamphlet-style book names 151 actors, writers, musicians, broadcast journalists, and others in the context of purported communist manipulation of the entertainment industry. Some of the 151 were already being denied employment because of their political beliefs, history, or association with suspected subversives. Red Channels effectively placed the rest on the industry blacklist. So Meg Mundy was on the Red Channels list. And there is a gap in her career on IMDb from 1961 to 1976. So does that mean she was blacklisted? Hollywoodblacklistmyth.blogspot.com says, There seems to be a great deal of confusion over having one's name in one of the several anti-communist publications of the 1950s and actually being blacklisted, that is, unable to find work as an actor. Despite what is written, Mundy's film career wasn't ruined by blacklisting because she had no film career prior to the supposed blacklisting era. In fact, in her entire career, she was in only seven films, all in the 1970s and 1980s. Mundy has a total of 38 film credits to her name, one before 1950 and nine after 1959. 28 of her film credits were made between 1950 and 1959 when she was supposedly blacklisted in Hollywood. She made seven television appearances in 1950 and no films. She made four television appearances in 1951, two in 1952, three in 1953, two in 1955, five in 1956, eight in 1957. She also took off a year in the 50s to give birth to her son. Between motherhood and her television career, she was also a fashion editor at a fabric house, as well as a beauty editor at Mademoiselle magazine. So with that series of roles in the 1950s, she probably was not blacklisted. This is from classictvhistory.wordpress.com. Mundy's second husband out of four was Mark Daniels, who after their divorce would move to Hollywood and direct for I Love Lucy and Star Trek. Daniels taught returning veterans at the American Theater Wing, which created a useful workshopping opportunity for his wife. The vets needed female actors to play opposite, and Mundy was a regular volunteer. In 1942, when they met, Daniels was an actor taking voice lessons from Mundy's mother, but his influence, as he turned toward teaching and directing, helped to revive Mundy's theatrical aspirations. Mark taught me all I know, she told Look Magazine in 1948. Mundy's stage career peaked with the female lead in Sidney Kingsley's detective story. It ran for a year and a half, but Lee Grant, in a supporting role, stole the show, and the movie version replaced Mundy and her leading man, Ralph Bellamy, with Eleanor Parker and Kirk Douglas. Amidst out-of-town theater jobs and the occasional cabaret engagement, the New York Herald Tribune wrote of her in 1950, Miss Mundy is lovely to look at, but she seems rather out of place, sort of like Queen Mary on a roller coaster. 
Meg ended up becoming the go-to leading lady in live television. In January 1950, she played in Sorry Wrong Number, telecast by CBS as a one-off color test. She played Amelia Earhart on Omnibus. She reunited with Detective Story co-stars Lee Grant for a Playwrights 56 and Ralph Bellamy for a 1954 U.S. Steel Hour. Few of her early television performances were filmed. In 1954, nearing 40, Mundy had a son with her third husband, opera director Dino Yiannopoulos, and was reluctant to follow television's migration to Los Angeles. By the 60s, Mundy was semi-retired from acting and working as a stylist and a fashion editor for Vogue and later Mademoiselle. For a time, she also owned a boutique in Connecticut with Lori March, one of the stars of the soap opera The Secret Storm. Then a former agent brought her back for a showy role in a soap opera, that of Mona Aldrich in The Doctors, a mother-in-law from hell who schemed to break up the marriage of her son. Soap Opera Digest called her the Catherine Hepburn of daytime. She played the role for almost a decade, starting around 1973, but the doctors killed her off with bubonic plague shortly before it reached its finish line in 1982. Among those early 1950s television appearances, she was in the Tales of Tomorrow episode, The Dark Angel. I must be seeing things. But what is it? What is listen this? To me, listen to me, listen to me. I have the power to do lots of things other people can't do. That's what I'm trying to explain to you. I think that, that I'm becoming an entirely new kind of human being. And I'm developing every day. I'm learning things. I'm going strong. It's almost as if I were just growing up, reaching maturity. And as I mentioned, she's in the suspense television episode, Goodbye, New York. Don't you think we'd better get out of here? You'd better get away from that window, too. There it is. Five hundred dollars. I could have taken a couple of thousand. Oh, Ray, as if you could murder morally, as if it made it any better that you saw only the right amount. Oh, Ray. Ray. Ray, what am I going to do? You mean, what should we do? No. No, Mary, it's got nothing to do with well, you. If it has, yes, it has. You shouldn't have called you quitter last night. It was much my fault as yours. Robbery was apparently the motive for the attack. The sum of $500 in $50 bills was missing. The attacker must have been known for the dead man, possibly some disgruntled former employee. Let me see that. That means there isn't much time. Arrest expected within the next 24 hours. There they are. Oh, wait a minute, Doctor. In her later career, she was in the films The Eyes of Laura Mars, Fatal Attraction, and Ordinary People. I don't think he's happy in school. Well, have you talked to his teachers? I don't think people want to be with him. He provokes people. Well, here, why don't you do this? It's an awkward age. Thank you. Maybe he needs a change. Are you sure he's eating enough? Yes, Mother, of course. I think he'll be all right. If you are firm with him, hmm? I think maybe he should go away to school. So I just don't know how to deal with him anymore. Who would make that decision? I don't know. I suppose this doctor he's seeing. What on earth sort of doctor would make that decision for you? A psychiatrist. I thought we were all finished with that. No. What's his name? Berger. 
Jewish doctor? I don't know. I suppose he's Jewish. Maybe just German. What does Cal say about all this? You know, I think this can be saved. It's a nice, clean break. Her next and last episode is Mr. Blanchard's Secret, episode 13 of season two. And Meg Mundy died in 2016 at the age of 101. The others I mentioned at the top of the program are all people we have seen before. This is James Nielsen's second of 12 episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. His last was just two episodes ago, Help Wanted. His next is The Legacy, episode number 35. Like Help Wanted, this episode is rather a workmanlike effort. Nothing particularly subtle or ingenious about it. We'll see how he does next time. Our teleplay writers are Victor Wolfson and Robert C. Dennis. This is the second of six for Victor Wolfson. His last was The Perfect Murder, episode number 24. His next is Toby, which also features Robert H. Harris, episode six of season two. Robert C. Dennis is, of course, much more prolific. This is his eighth of 30. After Don't Come Back Alive, Our Cook's a Treasure, Guilty Witness, The Older Sister, The Derelicts, Place of Shadows, and Help Wanted. His next is The Belfry, episode number 33. Jack Seabrook says, The title card states that the teleplay is by Victor Wolfson and Robert C. Dennis. At this late date, it is not likely that we will determine why it took two writers to adapt this story for the small screen, but it is possible that Wolfson had some difficulties and Dennis corrected them. The teleplay is based on a story by Stanley Ellen, whom we saw last time with the adaptation of his story The Cat's Paw into episode number 27, Help Wanted. This is his second of eight adaptations. His next is The Festive Season episode 31 of season 3. And now that we brought Stanley Ellen into it, let's take a look at his short story. Here's how it opens. Mr. Appleby was a small, prim man who wore rimless spectacles, parted his graying hair in the middle, and took sober pleasure in pointing out that there was no room in the properly organized life for the operations of chance. Consequently, when he decided that the time had come to investigate the most efficient methods for disposing of his wife, he knew where to look. He found the book, a text on forensic medicine, on the shelf of a second-hand bookshop among several volumes of like topic, and since all but one were in a distressingly shabby and dog-eared state which offended him to his very core, he chose the only one in reasonably good condition. Most of the cases it presented, he discovered on closer examination, were horrid studies of the results, vividly illustrated, of madness and lust, enough to set any decent man wondering at the number of monsters inhabiting the earth. One case, however, seemed to be exactly what he was looking for, and this he made the object of his most intensive study. It was the case of Mrs. X. The book was replete with Mrs. X's and Mr. Y's and Miss Z's, who died after what was presumably an accidental fall on a scatter rug in her home. However, a lawyer representing the interests of the late lamented charged her husband with murder and at a coroner's investigation was attempting to prove his charge when the accused abruptly settled matters by dropping dead of a heart attack. So the focus in Ellen's story, right off the bat, is Mr. Appleby's decision to murder his wife. In fact, his shop... Appleby's Antiques and Curios is not even mentioned until the next page. 
And when it is mentioned, there's no Mr. Dizar, no 14th century Sahara antiques, no Hittite Abjadar. In fact, it appears to be mostly a junk shop. And Ellen writes, The shop had grown directly from his childhood mania for collecting, assorting, labeling, and preserving anything he could lay his hands on. And the value of any item in the shop increased proportionately with the length of time he possessed it. The next difference between the story and the television episode is that by the time we get to page 5, Appleby has murdered five wives. Martha Sturgis, it seemed, Stanley Ellen tells us, was a six. And Martha is very different in the story. When she enters the shop, she says, My dear man, if it is your idea that I am here to start cluttering up my life with your monstrosities, perish the thought. What I'm here for is to buy a gift for a friend, a thoroughly infuriating and loathsome person who happens to have the nature and disposition of a bar of stainless steel. I can't think of a better way of showing my feelings towards her than by presenting her with almost anything displayed in your shop. If possible, I should like delivery arranged so that I can be on the scene when she receives the package. In spite of this attitude, Appleby, who was already thinking of her as wife number six, manages to sway her to the notion of marrying him. How does he do this? Well, Ellen writes, Much of her talk was about her father, to whom Mr. Appleby evidently bore a striking resemblance. And she later says, I am not a simpering schoolgirl, Mr. Appleby. I don't have to balance myself against my bank account to know why any man would devote himself to me. And frankly, his motives would be of no interest. But he must be a decent, respectable man who would spend every moment of his life worrying about me and caring for me. And he must be a man who would make the memory of my father a living thing. And so everything is arranged through Mr. Gainsborough and his firm. But Appleby quickly discovers that Martha's home is as he thinks, a nightmare of disorder. She also insists on cooking him meals that he can't stand and can barely digest, and she takes to calling him Appy, which he despises. Which leads us up to Appleby's attempt on his wife's life and his failure, but there's a whole section that is not in the episode at all. Martha tells him, all the time you were making your plans, I was unmaking them. From the moment I laid eyes on you, I knew you for what you are. Does that surprise you? Mr. Appleby struggled with the emotions of a man who has picked up a twig to find a viper in his hand. How could you know, he gasped, because you were the image of my father, because in everything, the way you dress, your insufferable neatness, your priggish arrogance, the little moral lectures you dote on, you are what he was. And all my life, I hated him for what he was and what it did to my mother. He married her for her money, made her every day a nightmare, and then killed her for what was left of her fortune. Killed her, said Mr. Appleby, stupefied. Oh, come, his wife said sharply. Do you think you're the only man who is ever capable of that? Yes, he killed her, murdered her, if you prefer, by asking for a glass of water and then breaking her neck when she offered it to him. A method strangely similar to yours, isn't it? Mr. Appleby found the incredible answer rising to his mind, but refused to accept it. What happened to him, he demanded. Tell me what happened. Was he caught? No, he was never caught. There were no witnesses to what he did. But Mr. Gainsborough had been my mother's lawyer, a dear friend of hers. He had suspicions and demanded a hearing. He brought a doctor to the hearing who made it plain how my father could have killed her and made it look as if she had slipped on the rug. But before there was any decision, my father died of a heart attack. That was the case. The case I read, 
Mr. Appleby groaned, and then was silent under his wife's sardonic regard. When he was gone, she went on inexorably, I swore I would some day find a man exactly like him, and I would make that man live the life my father should have lived. I would know his every habit and every taste, and none of them should go satisfied. I would know he married me for my money, and he would never get a penny of it until I was dead and gone. And that would be a long, long time, because he would spend his life taking care that I should live out my life to the last possible breath. And then, of course, she slips on the rug and dies leaving Appleby on the phone with Gainsborough, calling out, The ten seconds are up, Mr. Appleby. Do you understand? Your time is up. Now, Jack Seabrook says, The show diverges in a very important way from the story, as there is no mention of Martha's parents. Instead of seeking revenge for her mother's murder, she sees it as her duty to protect other unsuspecting women from Appleby by remaining his wife. Wolfson and Dennis must have decided that the coincidence of having Martha be the child of the couple about whom Appleby reads in the textbook was too far-fetched, and they may have been correct. The Martha of the TV show appears to have been genuine in her affection for Appleby, and it is clear that she was disappointed to discover his true colors. Other than streamlining the plot and making it fit into a half-hour format, the changes wrought by Wolfson and Dennis make Appleby less of a bluebeard and more of a victim of circumstance, if that can be said of a man who murders his wife to get her money. The threat of financial ruin is increased and is used as the explanation for his crimes. Perhaps the killer of six wives would not have been as palatable to the censors in 1956 as the killer of one wife. Well then, how about the killer of three wives? Mr. Appleby was about to open his fourth antique shop. His rather unusual methods of business had got him into the habit of disposing of a wife and a shop in a different town every few years. Mr. Appleby hated to sell anything. He loved his bric-a-brac. Consequently, three successive marriages to three well-to-do ladies had to date made good his losses. Appleby Antiques absorbed other people's capital. That was Roald Dahl introducing another version of the orderly world of Mr. Appleby, this time on his 1980 series, Tales of the Unexpected. Jack Seabrook points out that the show occurs inexplicably in what appears to be England between World War I and World War II. Perhaps the events of the tale seem to require an old-fashioned setting. In this version, Martha is presented as a much stronger and more forthright woman. She smokes cigarettes incessantly and dominates Appleby physically and emotionally from the first time they meet. Unlike the 1956 version, she often comments on how much Appleby reminds her of her father. You remind me of my father. Really? Yeah, he was a stickler, everything in its time and place. <laughs> Please. What? A cigarette. Ash never hurt a rug. I couldn't be there. That's far too. Uh, everything's at sixes and sevens. I'm terribly sorry, madam. Miss, Miss Sturgis. Very well, Miss, if you insist. You seem rather attached to that awful rug. The sentimental value. That's all. I'll bet. I think in this version we've just been introduced to the murder weapon. All of the father talk leads to the same place the short story does, although even this episode doesn't dare include the coincidence that Appleby actually has the book in hand that tells about Martha's parents. 
They're insufferably neat, just as he was, priggish and pompous. I hated him all my life for what he was and what he did to my mother. What? Married her for her money, made every day a nightmare, and then killed her for what was left of her fortune. Killed her? Oh, do you imagine you're the only man who's ever been capable of that? Yes, Appy dear. He killed her. Murdered her, if you prefer. Using a slip rug on a polished floor to make it look as though she'd broken her neck. A method strangely similar to your own, is it not? Aren't you going to drink your water? What happened to him? Oh, Mr. Gainsborough thinks you know that perfectly well. He thinks you read of the case and copied it. There were no witnesses, of course, but Mr. Gainsborough was my mother's solicitor. He became suspicious, demanded a hearing. A doctor made it clear in court how my father could have killed her and made it look like an innocent fool. But before a decision could be made, my father died of a heart attack. What has all this to do with us? When he was gone, I swore that I would find a man exactly like him and make him suffer as my mother suffered. I knew, of course, such a man would only marry me for my money. And I determined he should never see a penny of it until I was dead. And I won't be dead for a long, long time, Mappy dear, because you're going to care for me until my last possible breath. It all leads to these same final lines as the short story and the Hitchcock episode. The ten seconds are up, Appleby. Do you understand? Your time is up. A couple more things about this version. First of all, Appleby's first name here is Arthur, not Lawrence. And why not Arthur? Appleby gets no first name at all in Stanley Ellen's short story. And second, here's Jack Seabrook again. Once Appleby and Martha are wed, there is a strong undercurrent of sex in the show that was lacking in the story or the earlier TV version. Martha walks around the house in a nightgown, seems to have a ravenous sexual appetite, and wants her husband to spend more time at home so he can share her bed more frequently. At one point, she hops into bed and says to him, I'm looking for a distinct improvement tonight. If you are looking for a version that more closely adheres to the short story, then this is the version for you. But I prefer the Hitchcock version. As Jack said, in the Hitchcock version, Appleby is less of a bluebeard and more of a victim of circumstances. But those circumstances arise only because of his passion, his obsession with collecting. Most of us can identify with that at some level. We all have our passions. We all have our things that we would rather not give up. Whether it be an old car that you love that is reaching the end of its days, or that favorite food of yours that your doctor has told you to stop eating. So we can sympathize with Appleby to a great extent, because we have to decide whether it's worth it to put more money into that old car than its value, or to respect our health enough to swear that food off forever. Some of us will go to great lengths to preserve that object of our passion, just as Appleby does though none of us will go as far as committing murder. I don't think. Now, you may recall that way back in the podcast for episode four, Don't Come Back Alive, I said... Now, there is one other actor who gets credit at the end of this program, and we don't even get to see her face. She's the librarian. Why mention her? Because, as we've seen over the first four episodes, there's a troupe of actors that appear multiple times in the series. The librarian is played by Edna Holland, and she'll return in episode 29, The Orderly World of Mr. Appleby. And listening to the sound quality of that clip reminds me how much I want to get back into the library podcast studio. 
But if Edna Holland is supposed to be in this episode, then where is she? She is listed in the closing credits, along with another actress named Helen Spring. IMDb and the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion by Martin Grahams Jr. and Patrick Wickstrom list Edna Holland as playing Mrs. Murchie and Helen Spring as playing Mrs. Grant. But they're not in my copy of the episode. Now, it could be that the DVD version is abridged, or it could be that they were filmed but cut out before the premiere of the episode, or I don't know what. But in any event, let me retroactively say that Edna Holland's only appearance was in Don't Come Back Alive, episode number four. And Helen Spring has no appearances in Alfred Hitchcock Presents. But because Helen had a small role as a bidder in North by Northwest, the one that turns to Cary Grant and says, Well, one thing we know, you're no fake. You're a genuine idiot. Let's give her her due and say that she was born Helen Springer in New York City. She has appearances in The Dick Van Dyke Show, Perry Mason, Willard, and Breakfast at Tiffany's, in which she plays, according to IMDb, party guest with hat on fire. And she died in 1978 at the age of 79. In his book, Alfred Hitchcock, A Life in Darkness and Light, Patrick McGilligan writes, Hitchcock's final piece in the Henley Telegraph, published in March 1921, is short and perhaps his most enigmatic contribution. Some of the detail is quite precise, however. Hitchcock is specific about the bank, for instance, an underground station in the heart of the city, close to a busy street that runs along the river, the sort of place where a policeman stopping traffic for a girl would be exceptional. And the play to which the piece refers is almost certainly Harold Brighouse's Hobson's Choice, which Hitchcock had seen when it was first performed in 1916. The story of an illiterate bootmaker taken up by the old maid daughter of his boss and turned into a sort of tycoon after the daughter teaches him to read by copying out text on a slate. The play was filmed by David Lean in 1954. But who is the mysterious woman in Hitchcock's little story? There is no clue. So here is Hitchcock's final story from the Henley Telegraph entitled Fedora. A play of a year or two back provided a situation of a little man seeking the goal of worldly greatness. In order that we should return home with a feeling of satisfaction, the author allowed the hero to attain his object, but not without the usual obstacles experienced by all great men. His earliest efforts included self-education, and I can clearly remember his model line for an exercise in handwriting. It was, Great things grow from small. I believe this obvious aphorism was the pivot of the whole plot, and also of all our plots, because every person has a plot, I don't mean allotment, and every plot is the same. I don't know if you have ever seen a puny young nanny goat alone in a field in a rainstorm. If so, you have seen Fedora. Fedora is the heroine of this disquisition. She is small, simple, unassuming, and noiseless, yet she commands profound attention on all sides. People stopped to observe her, and I believe it to be on record that one of the policemen on point duty at the bank has held up the traffic, all for Fedora. You suggest she is beautiful. No, not definitely. I say not definitely, because I hold out hopes. Her appearance, starting with the top, as the guidebook says, there is an abundance of dark brown hair, under which peeps out a tiny perky face, consisting of two greeny-brown eyes, an aquiline nose, usual in these cases, and a faded rosebud-lipped mouth. Her figure is small, possessing some of that buoyance of youth when walking with the aid of a pair of unassuming legs, or, shall I say, 
to get away from the suggestion of artificiality, inconspicuously regular. Great woman labor leader hits out. Can that be? I had hoped for better, but no worse. Perhaps an actress? I can see a storm of emotion exploding in the face of a helpless juvenile lead, the fury of a woman scorned. Then the vociferous applause from all except her victim. What will be his feeling? Perhaps he will be overcome by her dazzling personality. Dare he ask her to be his... Wait, if our fedora is to marry, surely she shall be a real wife, a worthy figure of womanly charm and grace. This, of course, depends upon the realization of my hopes. Let me suggest the wife of the mayor. Shall I put it, as it were, the power behind the chair? My dear George, the tram service lately has been disgusting. You must see that... Yes, my dear, I will mention... At functions, she will be the recipient of bouquets from the daughter of the local contractor. Sometimes, I imagine, she will write brilliant novels, profound essays, and learned works. But it is all mere conjecture on my part. Whatever may be, but I am no prophet, neither is she. Time will tell. The next in our series of early Hitchcock films, Hitch as title designer, is Beside the Bonnie Briarbush, known in the U.S. as simply the Bonnie Briarbush, directed by and starring Donald Crisp, scenario by Margaret Turnbull, from two play adaptations by James MacArthur and Augustus Thorne of the novel Beside the Bonnie Briarbush by Ian McLaren. Now, the November 1922 issue of Picture Goer says, All about a shepherd's daughter who is beloved by a laird, picturesque backgrounds and powerful acting, but a very ordinary story. And The Times, of November 15, 1922, says, Another film with rural Scotland for its setting is to be seen this week in Beside the Bonnie Briarbush, a famous Lasky picture based on the novel of the same name by Ian McLaren. There is a wholly pleasant flavor about this mid-Victorian story, which treats of the love of a village girl and a man above her station, the son of a proud Scottish peer. Her father, shepherd of the peer's flocks, turns her out of his home and his life, but in time his heart is softened by a reminder that his own wife, her mother, was a woman above his station. There is some excellent characterization of Scottish village types, and the cast includes several established favorites, such as Miss Mary Glynn, Mr. Alex Framer, Mr. Langhorn Burton, Miss Dorothy Fane, and Mr. Donald Crisp. So that sounds okay, and that's the consensus from the British point of view. But what about the American point of view? Well, the Exhibitor's Herald for December 10th, 1921 is much more positive. And no, I don't really understand why the British reviews are from magazines in 1922. It appears that the film came out a year later in Britain, even though that is its country of origin. In any event, in their Digest of Pictures of the Week, the Exhibitor's Herald says, The Bonnie Briarbush, famous players British, is one of the best of the foreign-made paramounts. It is an adroit picturization of Ian McLaren's classic story of the same title, admirably directed by Donald Crisp, who also plays a leading role. It is an excellent story of Scottish life of half a century ago, doubtless meriting more patronage than the modern public will accord it. And in a fuller review in that same issue, they write, Ian McLaren's classic, admirably picturized. A story of old Scotland, which registers a high degree of artistry. A well-balanced cast imparts realism to a difficult dramatization. Donald Crisp directed and enacts a principal role. Donald Crisp, directing and playing a prominent part in the Bonnie Briarbush, famous player's British picturization of Ian McLaren's classic, attains artistic heights. 
It is doubtful if a moderate American public will attend the picture's exhibition in great numbers, but those whom it will attract are those it will please. The work of Donald Crisp as the dour Scot whose harshness to his daughter brings about the plot complications is excellent. His direction is of like quality. Valuable assistance is given by Dorothy Fane and Mary Glynn, English actresses of personality and poise, well suited in the roles they portray. The settings are apparently authentic and certainly beautiful. The peculiarly brilliant photography, which has been observed in other English productions, obtains. Something should be written upon that subject. In the story, Donald Crisp is seen as the shepherd of the Earl of Drumtakti, as much a Democrat as his lord is an aristocrat. The shepherd's daughter and the Earl's son marry secretly, according to Scottish custom, and parental objection leads to misunderstandings followed by separation and misery. The reconciliation is logically brought about and the ending satisfactory. So that sounds like something I'd like to see. Unfortunately, I can't. The film is lost. Now to wrap things up, here's Hitch. Do you remember where we left off? they come, the harder they fall. By the way, what you have just seen is of historical significance. It was in precisely this way that a housewife carrying an armload of vegetables invented the tossed salad. Now, before I say goodnight, my uh, sponsor would like to bring you an important message. I needn't tell you to whom it is important. Alfred Hitchcock presents Season 1, The Postman Always Rings Twice, Ordinary People, The Twilight Zone, Season 3, I Want to Live, Failsafe, and North by Northwest are all available at the Ann Arbor District Library. Details of the unexpected version of The Orderly World of Mr. Appleby the suspense episodes Goodbye New York and Nightmare at Ground Zero, the Tales of Tomorrow episode The Dark Angel, and the thriller episode Portrait Without a Face are all available online. If you would like to contact me about this podcast, please email me at sherdsmaa at aadl.org. That's S-J-O-E-R-D-S-M-A-A at aadl.org. And please put Hitchcock somewhere in the subject line. Next time, episode 30, Never Again, starring Phyllis Thaxter, Louise Albritton, and Warren Stevens. That concludes our entertainment for tonight. Once again, through a propaganda play, we have attempted to make the world a better place in which to live. I am confident that tonight we struck a telling blow in the cause of wall-to-wall carpet.